0: My rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.
1: This is the London Visited podcast on your favourite podcast provider, bringing to you the facts, history and information about different parts of this great capital. If you have been to London, are planning on visiting, live here or just love London from afar, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Steve and welcome to our podcast. We're here for all things London and to tell you more behind some of the iconic places and people in London's history. In this episode, we go back to the Houses of Parliament for part two of our podcast on this, the home to UK power in politics. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel London Visited to see videos covering this place and so many others across London. And now to this week's podcast. Laws can be made by Acts of the UK Parliament While acts can apply to the whole of the UK, including Scotland, due to the continuing separation of Scots law, many acts do not apply to Scotland and may be matched either by equivalent acts that apply to Scotland alone or, since 1999, by legislation set up by the Scottish Parliament relating to devolved matters. This has led to a paradox known as the West Lothian question. The existence of a devolved Scottish Parliament means that while Westminster MPs from Scotland may vote directly on matters that affect English constituencies, they may not have much power over their laws, affecting their own constituency. Since there is no devolved English Parliament, the converse is not true. While any act of the Scottish Parliament may be overturned, amended, or ignored by Westminster, in practice this is yet to happen. Legislative consent motions enables the UK Parliament to vote on issues normally devolved to Scotland, Wales, or Northern Ireland as part of the UK legislation. Laws, in draft form known as bills, may be introduced by any member of either house. A bill introduced by a minister is known as a government bill. One introduced by another member is called a private member's bill. A different way of categorizing bills involves the subject Most bills involving the general public are called public bills. A bill that seeks to grant special rights to an individual or small group of individuals or a body such as a local authority is called a private bill. A public bill which affects private rights, in the way a private bill would, is called a hybrid bill, although those that draft bills take pains to avoid this. Private members bills make up a majority of bills but are far less likely to be passed than government bills. There are three methods for an MP to introduce a private member's bill. The private member's ballot, once per session, put names into a ballot, and those who win are given time to propose a bill. The 10-minute rule is another method, where MPs are granted 10 minutes to outline the case for a new piece of legislation. Standing Order 57 is the third method, which allows a bill to be introduced without debate if a day's notice is given to the table office. Filibustering is a danger. As an opponent of the bill can waste much of the limited time allotted to it. Private members' bills have no chance of success if the current government opposes them, but they are used in moral issues. The bills to decriminalize homosexuality and abortion were private members' bills, for example. Governments can sometimes attempt to use private members' bills to pass things it would rather not be associated with. Handout bills are bills which a government hands to MPs who win private member ballots. Each bill goes through several stages in each House. The first stage, called the first reading, is a formality. At the second reading, the general principles of the bill are debated, and the House may vote to reject the bill by not passing the motion, That the bill may now be read a second time. Defeats of government bills in the Commons are extremely rare, the last being in 2005, and may constitute a motion of no confidence. Defeats of bills in the Lords never affect confidence and are much more frequent. Following the second reading, the bill is sent to a committee. In the House of Lords, the Committee of the Whole House, or the Grand Committee are used. Each consists of all members of the House, the latter operates under special procedures and is used only for uncontroversial bills. In the House of Commons, the bill is usually committed to a public bill committee, consisting of between 16 and 50 members, but the Committee of the Whole House is used for important legislation several other types of committees, including select committees, may be used, but rarely. A committee considers a bill clause by clause and reports the bill as amended to the House, where further detailed consideration, consideration stage, or report stage occurs. However, a practice which used to be called the kangaroo, Standing Order 32, allows the speaker to select which amendments are debated. This device is also used under Standing Order 89 by the committee chairman to restrict debate in committee. The speaker, who is impartial as between the parties, by convention selects amendments for debate which represent the main divisions of opinion within the House. Other amendments can technically be proposed, but in practice have no chance of success unless the parties in the House are closely divided. If pressed, they would normally be casually defeated by acclamation. Once the House has considered the bill, the third reading follows. In the House of Commons, no further amendments may be made, and the passage of the motion that the bill be now read a third time is passage of the whole bill. In the House of Lords, further amendments to the bill may be moved. After the passage of the third reading motion, the House of Lords must vote on the motion that the bill do now pass. Following its passage in one House, the bill is sent to the other House. If passed in identical form by both Houses, it may be presented for the sovereign's assent. If one House passes amendments that the other will not agree to, and the two Houses cannot resolve their disagreements, the bill will normally fail. Since the passage of the Parliament Act 1911, the power of the House of Lords to reject bills passed by the House of Commons has been restricted, with further restrictions placed by the Parliament Act of 1949. If the House of Commons passes a public bill in two successive sessions, and the House of Lords rejects it both times the Commons may direct that the bill be presented to the Sovereign for his or her assent, disregarding the rejection of the bill in the House of Lords. In each case, the bill must be passed by the House of Commons at least one calendar month before the end of the session. The provision does not apply to private bills or to public bills if they originated in the House of Lords, or if they seek to extend the duration of a Parliament beyond five years. A special procedure applies in relation to bills classified by the Speaker of the House of Commons as money bills. A money bill concerns solely national taxation or public funds. The Speaker's certificate is deemed conclusive under all circumstances. If the House of Lords fails to pass a money bill, within one month of its passage in the House of Commons, the lower house may direct that bill be submitted for the sovereign's assent immediately. Even before the passage of the Parliament Act. The Commons possessed preeminence in cases of financial matters. By ancient custom, the House of Lords may not introduce a bill relating to taxation or supply, nor amend a bill so as to insert a provision relating to taxation or supply, nor amend a supply bill in any way. The House of Commons is free to waive this privilege, and sometimes does so to allow the House of Lords to pass amendments with financial implications. The House of Lords remains free to reject bills relating to supply and taxation, but may be overruled easily if the bills are money bills. A bill relating to revenue and supply may not be a money bill, if, for example, it includes subjects other than national taxation and public funds. The last stage of a bill involves the granting of the royal assent. Theoretically, the sovereign may either grant or withhold royal assent, make the bill a law or veto the bill. In modern times, the sovereign always grants the royal assent, using the Norman-French words Lorraine le Vieux. The Queen wishes it, la Roy, instead in the case of a king. The last refusal to grant the assent was in 1708, when Queen Anne withheld her assent from a bill for settling the militia in Scotland. In the words Lorraine assevera," the Queen will think it over. Thus, every bill obtains the assent of all three components of Parliament. Before it becomes law, except where the House of Lords is overridden under the Parliament Act 1911 and 1949, the words be it enacted by the Queen's, King's Most Excellent Majesty, by and with the advice and consent of the Lords Spiritual and Temporal, and Commons, in this present Parliament assembled, and by the authority of the same, as follows. Or where the House of Lords' authority has been overridden by the use of the Parliament Acts, the words be it enacted by the Queen's, King's, Most Excellent Majesty, by and with the advice and consent of the Commons, in this present Parliament assembled. In accordance with the provisions of the Parliament Act 1911 and 1949, and by the authority of the same, as follows, appear near the beginning of each Act of Parliament. These words are known as the enacting formula. Prior to the creation of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom in 2009, Parliament was the highest court in the realm for most purposes, but the Privy Council had jurisdiction in some cases, for instance, appeals from ecclesiastical courts. The jurisdiction of Parliament arose from the ancient custom of petitioning the Houses to redress grievances and to do justice. The House of Commons ceased considering petitions to reverse the judgments of lower courts in 1399, effectively leaving the House of Lords as the court of last resort. In modern times, the judicial functions of the House of Lords were performed not by the whole House, but by the Lords of Appeal in Ordinary. Judges granted life peerage dignities under the Appellate Jurisdiction Act of 1876 and by the Lords of Appeal, other appeals with experience in the judiciary. However, under the Constitutional Reform Act of 2005, these judicial functions were transferred to the newly created Supreme Court in 2009, and the Lords of Appeal in Ordinary became the first justices of the Supreme Court. Peers who hold high judicial office are no longer allowed to vote or speak in the Lords until they retire as justices. In the late 19th century, Acts allowed for the appointment of the Scottish Lords of Appeal in Ordinary and ended appeal in Scottish criminal matters to the House of Lords, so that the High Court of Juristy became the highest criminal court in Scotland. There is an argument that the provision of Article 19 of the Union with England Act 1707 prevent any court outside Scotland from hearing any appeal in criminal cases. And that said, courts or any other of the like nature after the unions shall have no power to Congress review or alter the acts or sentences of the juricatures within Scotland or stop the execution of the same. The House of Lords Judicial Committee usually had a minimum of two Scottish judges. To ensure that some experience of Scots law was brought to bear on Scottish appeals in civil cases. From the Court of Session. The Supreme Court now usually has at least two Scottish judges, together with at least one from Northern Ireland. As Wales is developing its own judicature, it is likely that the same principle will be applied. Certain other judicial functions have historically been performed by the House of Lords. Until 1948, it was the body in which peers had to be tried for felonies or high treason. Now they are tried by normal juries. The last occasion of the trial of a peer in the House of Lords was in 1935. When the House of Commons impeaches an individual, the trial takes place in the House of Lords. Impeachments are now possibly defunct, as the last one occurred in 1806. In 2006, a number of MPs attempted to revive the custom, having signed a motion for the impeachment of Tony Blair, but this was unsuccessful. The British government is answerable to the House of Commons. However, neither the Prime Minister nor members of the government are elected by the House of Commons. Instead, the Queen requests that the person most likely to command the support of a majority in the House normally be the leader of the largest party in the House of Commons to form a government, so that they may be accountable to the lower house. The Prime Minister and most members of the cabinet are, by convention, members of the House of Commons. The last Prime Minister to be a member of the House of Lords was Alec Douglas Hume, 14th Earl of Hume, who became Prime Minister in 1963. To adhere to the convention under which he was responsible, to the lower house, he disclaimed his peerage and procured election to the House of Commons within days of becoming Prime Minister. Governments have a tendency to dominate the legislative functions of Parliament by using their inbuilt majority in the House of Commons, and sometimes using their patronage power to appoint supportive peers in the Lords. In practice, governments can pass any legislation, within reason, in the Commons they wish, unless there is a major dissent by MPs in the governing party. But even in these situations, it is highly unlikely a bill will be defeated. Though, dissenting MPs may be able to extract concessions from the government. In 1976, Quentin Hogg, Lord Hailsham of St Marybone, created a now widely used name for this behavior in an academic paper called Elective Dictatorship. Parliament controls the executive by passing or rejecting its bills and by forcing ministers of the crown to answer for their actions, either at question time or during meetings of the parliamentary committees. In both cases, ministers are asked questions by members of their houses and are obliged to answer. Although the House of Lords may scrutinize the executive through question time and through its committees, it cannot bring down the government a ministry must always retain the confidence and support of the house of commons. The lower house may indicate its lack of support by rejecting a motion of confidence, or by passing a motion of no confidence. Confidence motions are generally originated by the government to reinforce its support in the house, whilst no-confidence motions are introduced by the opposition. The motions sometimes take the form that this house has no confidence in Her Majesty's Government, but several other varieties many referring to specific policies supported or opposed by Parliament are used. For instance, a confidence motion of 1992 used the form that this House expresses the support for the economic policy of Her Majesty's Government. Such a motion may theoretically be introduced in the House of Lords. But, as the government need not enjoy the confidence of that House, would not be of the same effect as a similar motion in the House of Commons. The only modern instances of such an occurrence involves the no-confidence motion that was introduced in 1993 and subsequently defeated. Many votes are considered votes of confidence, although it's not including the language mentioned above. Important bills that form part of the government's agenda, as stated in the speech from the throne, are generally considered matters of confidence. The defeat of such a bill by the House of Commons indicates that a government no longer has the confidence of that House. The same effect is achieved if the House of Commons withdraws supply, that is, rejects the budget. Where a government has lost the confidence of the House of Commons, in other words, has lost the ability to secure the basic requirement of the authority of the House of Commons to tax and spend government money, the Prime Minister is obliged either to resign or seek the dissolution of Parliament and a new general election. Otherwise, the machinery of government grinds to a halt within days. The third choice, to mount a coup de terre, or an anti-democratic revolution is hardly to be contemplated in the present age. Though all three situations have arisen in recent years, even in developed economies, international relations have allowed a disaster to be avoided. Where a prime minister has ceased to retain the necessary majority and requests a dissolution, the sovereign can in theory reject his or her request, forcing a resignation and allowing the leader of the opposition to be asked to form a new government. This power is used extremely rarely. The conditions that should be met to allow such a refusal are known as the Lascelles Principles. These conditions and principles are constitutional conventions arising from a sovereign's reserve powers, as well as long standing tradition and practice, not laid down in law. In practice, the House of Commons scrutiny of the government is very weak. Since the first past the post electoral system is employed in elections, the governing party tends to enjoy a large majority in the Commons. There is often limited need to compromise with other parties. Modern British political parties are so tightly organised that they leave relatively little room for free action by their MPs. In many cases, MPs may be expelled from their parties for voting against the instructions of party leaders. During the 20th century, the government has lost confidence issues only 3 times, twice in 1924 and once in 1979. In the UK, question time in the House of Commons lasts for an hour each day. From Monday to Thursday, 2.30 to 3.30 pm on Mondays, 11.30 am to 12.30 pm on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and 9.30 to 10.30 am on Thursdays. Each government department has its place in a rotor, which repeats every five weeks. The exception to this sequence are the business questions. Questions to the leader of the House of Commons. In which questions are answered each Thursday about the business of the House of the following week. Also, questions to the Prime Minister takes place each Wednesday from noon to 12.30pm. In addition to government departments, there are also questions to the church commissioners. Additionally, each member of parliament is entitled to table questions for written answer. Written questions are addressed to the ministerial head of a government department usually a Secretary of State, but they are often answered by a Minister of State or Parliamentary Under-Secretary of State. Written questions are submitted to the clerks of the table office, either on paper or electronically, and answers are recorded in the official report Hansard, so as to be widely available and accessible. In the House of Lords, a half-hour is set aside each afternoon at the start of the day's proceedings, for Lords' oral questions. A peer submits a question in advance, which then appear on the order paper for the day's proceedings. The peer shall say, My Lords, I beg leave to ask the question standing in my name on the order paper. The minister responsible then answers the question. The peer is then allowed to ask a supplementary question. And other peers ask further questions on the theme of the original put down on the order paper. For instance, if the question regards immigration, peers can ask the minister any question relating to immigration during the allowed period. Several different views have been taken of Parliament's sovereignty. According to the jurist, Sir William Blackstone, it has sovereign and uncontrollable authority in making, confirming, enlarging, restraining, abrogating, repealing, reviving, and expounding of laws concerning matters of all possible denominations, ecclesiastical, or temporal, civil, military, maritime, or criminal. It can, in short, do everything that is not naturally impossible." A different view has been taken by the Scottish judge, Thomas Cooper, 1st Lord Cooper of Cal Ross, when he described the 1953 case of McCormack v. Lord Advocate as Lord President of the Court of Session. He stated, The principle of unlimited sovereignty in Parliament is a distinctively English principle which has no counterpart in Scottish constitutional law. Considering that the Union legislation extinguished the parliaments of Scotland and England and replaced them with a new parliament, I have difficulty in seeing why the new parliament of Great Britain must inherit all of the peculiar characteristics of the English parliament, but none of the Scottish. Nevertheless, he did not give a conclusive opinion on the subject. Thus, the question of parliamentary sovereignty appears to remain unresolved. Parliament has not passed any act defining its own sovereignty. The European Union Withdrawal Agreement Act 2020 states, it is recognized that the Parliament of the United Kingdom is sovereign, without qualification or definition. A related possible limitation on Parliament relates to the Scottish legal system and Presbyterian faith, preservation of which was Scottish preconditions to the creation of the unified Parliament. Since the Parliament of the United Kingdom was set up in reliance on these promises, it may be that it has no power to make laws that break them parliament's power has often been eroded by its own acts acts passed in 1921 and 1925 granted the church of scotland complete independence in ecclesiastical matters from 1973 to 2020 its power had been restricted by members of the european union which has the power to make laws enforceable in each member state in the factor time case The European Court of Justice ruled that the British courts have powers to overturn British legislation, contravening European law. Parliament has also created national devolved parliaments and assemblies with differing degrees of legislative authority in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Parliament still has the power over areas for which responsibility lies with the devolved institutions but would ordinarily gain the agreement of those institutions to act on their own behalf. Similarly, it has granted the power to make regulations to the ministers of the crown, and the power to enact religious legislation to the General Synod of the Church of England. Measures of the General Synod and, in some cases, proposed statutory instruments made by ministers must be approved by both houses before they become law. In every case aforementioned, authority has been conceded by Act of Parliament and may be taken back in the same manner. It is entirely within the authority of Parliament For example, to abolish the devolved governments in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Or, as happened in 2020, to leave the EU. However, Parliament also revoked its legislative competence over Australia and Canada with the Australia and Canada Acts. Although the Parliament of the United Kingdom could pass an act reversing its action, it would not take effect in Australia or Canada as the competence of the Imperial Parliament is no longer recognized there in law. One well-recognized consequence of Parliament's sovereignty is that it cannot bind future parliaments. That is, no Act of Parliament may be made secure from amendment or repeal by future Parliament. For example, although the Act of Union 1800 states that the kingdoms of Great Britain and Ireland are to be united forever, Parliament permitted Southern Ireland to leave the United Kingdom in 1922. Each House of Parliament possesses and guards various ancient privileges. The House of Lords relies on inherent right. In the case of the House of Commons, the Speaker goes to the Lords' chamber at the beginning of each new parliament and requests representatives of the Sovereign to confirm the lower house's undoubted privileges and rights. The ceremony observed by the House of Commons dates to the reign of King Henry VIII. Each house is the guardian of its privileges and may punish breaches thereof. The extent of parliamentary privilege is based on law and custom. Sir William Blackstone states that these privileges are very large and indefinite and cannot be defined except by the Houses of Parliament themselves. The foremost privilege claimed by both Houses is that of freedom of speech in debate. Nothing said in either House may be questioned in any court or other institution outside Parliament. Another privilege claimed is that of freedom from arrest. At one time, this was held to apply for any arrest except for high treason, felony, or breach of the peace but now excludes any arrest on criminal charges. It applies during a session of Parliament and 40 days before and after such a session. Members of both houses are no longer privileged from service on juries. Both houses possess the power to punish breaches of their privilege. Contempt of Parliament, for example, disobedience and a subpoena issued by a committee may also be punished. The House of Lords may imprison an individual for any fixed period of time but an individual imprisoned by the House of Commons is set free upon prorogation. The punishments imposed by either house may not be challenged in any court and the Human's Right Act does not apply. Until at least 2015, members of the House of Commons also had the privilege of a separate seating area in the Palace of Westminster Canteen, protected by a false partition labelled MPs only beyond this point, so that they did not have to sit with canteen staff taking a break. This provoked mockery from a newly elected 20-year-old MP who described it as ridiculous snobbery. The quasi-official emblem of the Houses of Parliament is a crowned portcullis. The portcullis was officially the badge of various English noble families from the 14th century. It went on to be adopted by the kings of the Tudor dynasty in the 16th century, under whom the Palace of Westminster became the regular meeting place of Parliament. The crown was added to make the badge a specifically royal symbol. The portcullis probably first came to be associated with the Palace of Westminster through its use as decoration in the rebuilding of the palace after the fire of 1512. However, at the time it was only one of many symbols. The widespread use of the portcullis throughout the palace dates from the 19th century when Charles Barry and Augustus Pugin used it extensively as a decorative feature in their designs for the new palace built following the disastrous 1834 fire. The crowned portcullis came to be accepted during the 20th century as an emblem of both Houses of Parliament. This was simply a result of custom and usage, rather than a specific decision. The emblem now appears on official stationery, publications and papers and is stamped on various items used in the Palace of Westminster, such as cutlery, silverware and china. Various shades of red and green are used for visual identification of the House of Lords and the House of Commons. All public events are broadcast live and on-demand via Parliament Live TV, which maintains an archive dating back to the 4th of December 2007. There is also a related official YouTube channel. They are also broadcast live by the independent Euronews English Channel. In the UK, the BBC has its own dedicated Parliament channel, BBC Parliament, which broadcasts 24 hours a day and is also available on BBC iPlayer. It shows live coverage from the House of Commons, House of Lords, the Scottish Parliament, the Northern Ireland Assembly, and the Welsh Assembly. So I hope you've enjoyed our second of our two-part episode on the Houses of Parliament. It's always fascinating to look back in history and see where things started. If you've enjoyed this and you'd like to make contact with us and suggest any places you'd like us to feature in future podcasts, you can let me know through our website, www londonvisited.co.uk. It really is that simple. Thanks for listening. Really hope you enjoyed our podcast and we'll see you soon on the next one. Bye. Thanks for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to get more shows direct to your device. Also, why not visit our London Visited YouTube channel to get even more of London. Catch you soon on the next one.